Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I assume you've read the little pamphlet to say who's going to be talking and briefly about what. For those of you don't, that don't know about the business intelligence stream, it's sort of like it's, it's a part of the wider field stream, and uh, we focus on business intelligence in, in general. Everybody has slightly different applications, and our talks today will mostly be around the slightly more advanced analytics side of BI. So we won't necessarily just go purely into this is a SAP implementation or that kind of thing. We're going to be talking about big data, unstructured data mining techniques and those kinds of things. So again, thank you for coming. Yeah, I'm FC DeForce. I'm going to be talking about transforming big data into impact data. So essentially, I've broken down the scenario into four easy to follow questions than the one leads to the other. So the first is, what does our ideal customer look like? So we need to know exactly which customers it is that we do need to try and attract in our business. The second is, how do we attract those specific kinds of customers? Then we move on to, okay, we've attracted th those kinds of customers, but now how do we maximize the revenue we get from it? And then we move on to some real practical, real life benefits that people have experienced from using big data techniques. So the first thing that we're going to be talking about is what do our ideal customers look like? And intuitively speaking, this is a, an easy question to answer. It's the guys that you're going to get the most money from, really. It's not quite that simple when you do get to industry. So if you're looking at your different target markets, if you're looking at your DPS, your Louis Vuittons, your Rolls-Royce, those guys have a very specific target market, and the very exclusivity of their product determines their market. Whereas if you do it on the flip side, utilities, access to using the utility is actually paramount. So defining the target market is not that simple. And specifically, those were quite easy ones. But now you move over to the telecommunications market. So we all know from insurance principles, you need to have economies of scale to be able to generate sufficient profits. Now, in the telecommunications market, it's quite interesting because your lowest value segments actually remove value from the company as opposed to the higher ones. So it's very important to get that balance between generating the economies of scale and actually getting the right segment of customers. I'm going to be talking about two techniques here. The first is just customer segmentation, which I'm hoping everybody's seen some form of before. And that'll be followed by uh, just a quick discussion on customer lifetime value and how some of the actuarial techniques are important but can be adapted in different environments. Now, I know most of the stuff is directed towards telecommunications, but it can easily be extrapolated into the insurance or banking industry. So your typical historical uh, segmentation is based on things like demographics. Uh, we, we all know about demographics by this time. Um, lifestyle, needs, attitude, value, and behavioral stuff. So attitude, for instance, is if we all know 80-20, and they have these things about how do you feel about this kind of thing. So you can segment your customer base according to those kinds of things. But now the point is that you're introducing bias because you're picking one of these, or you're picking two, or you're picking three, and you're saying these are the things that actually influence which kind of customers we have, which we're going to get, and all of those things. But it's biased, and if you start playing into a couple more of these things, so if you're trying to combine demographics and lifestyle, for instance, then you're do doing an N by M multiplication, and you bring in all of those into account, 
and at the end you've got this massive table and you don't actually know how to segment the customer base. So one of the cool techniques that we've picked up from one of the other industries is SOMS, so self-organizing map systems. Now they sound complicated and whatever, but it's basically based on neural networks and it kind of trains itself. So what you have is you see in the middle picture here, right? You've got little hexagons. So what it does is it puts all the people into the little hexagon. And um, your hexagon is, say, for instance, based on uh, people aged 20 to 25, and it's males, and we like watching rugby on a Saturday morning. Um, so that puts you in your little segment. Then what you do is you use these self-organizing map systems to shuffle all of these hexagons around to form different customer segments. And you get heat maps, like you see on the right, which show different things. So it, one, of the, uh, one of the maps there could be age, there could be preference for being contacted via email or any of those. But I do think I'm running over time a little bit, so let me speed up a bit. Um, so the advantages of using SOMS is that it's fast, it's unbiased, you're using all of the information that you're doing, and it's also taking each of these dimensions and prioritizing them for you. So it's, it's telling you demographics are more important than attitude, is more important than value or whatever. And it tells you these are your characteristics and these are the guys that you need to pitch to. So the next thing is customer lifetime value and that actually speaks quite nicely to some of the actuarial principles. You can think of it as embedded value. And some of the questions that have been raised, uh, particularly I know at the, at the Institute in the UK, about why haven't actuaries really been playing a little bit more in this space? Because it's such a natural extension of our skills. But that, that as an aside. So we use the same techniques as embedded value. So you use survival analysis, cost analysis, and revenue predictions. Um, the thing that you do bring extra into this, because you're generally working into a variable expenditure type model, you need to do a bit of behavioral, per behavioral prediction as well. So uh, if this month I'm spending between 200 and 250, what's the chances that I'll be spending 250 to 300 next month? So those kinds of things you also bring into account. So the nice thing about customer lifetime value is it moves industries like telecommunications into a more longer term sustainable view than the short-term view that they're currently occupying. So you consider the customer through the lifetime of the customer, so acquisition, development, retention, and then reactivation. Through acquisition, the nice thing is you pick up your high-value customers right early on. So you know this guy is gonna be good value, we're gonna give him great service, and he's gonna generate us a lot of money. Um, and it's gonna tell you exactly who to target, so this segment we're targeting with this product. In development, we're talking about cross and upsell. So what's the most likely next product that we can get to this guy? How likely is he to take it up? How much is he going to spend on it? Then we move on to retention and we segment them in according to who are the most likely people to leave and of those, what do our retention activities actually have an impact on to keep those guys? And then reactivation is ironically one of the easiest places to generate additional value for companies. Because the costs associated with reactivating a customer is much lower than acquiring a new customer, and you've already got the information, so you know if this guy's going to be a high-value customer or not. So now we know what this guy looks like you know, in terms of value. But now we need to know how to get this guy. So this is where the big data techniques kind of start coming into the whole picture. Okay. So big data, basically, there's a lot of talk around it, but Big data is basically just when the data becomes so much that traditional data techniques just 
don't work and it, your computer just falls over. So um, what we're using here is a combination between structured and unstructured data to give a view of the customer. So the first port of call is always your internal structured data. You've got your nice little SAP database or whatever type stack you have back at the office, and that gives you nice information about your customer and you know exactly what that says. Then you get structured external data where we've, we're lucky in South Africa where we have um, companies like 8020 which gives us that information which is quite easy to overlay as well. Then we start, okay, now we're saying, okay, well, we've got this information, but we don't think that's quite enough to tell us the story that we need to know about a customer. So then we move into the spaces of the unstructured data. So then you also have internal and external unstructured data. So internal unstructured data is your, uh, the little focus groups that you have, the, your mystery shoppers, and, and those kinds of information. And then you have your external sources. Um, and I, I've, I've listed Hello Peter here as one of actually the most interesting ones to include because it's something directly aimed at businesses and very easy to text mine the data that they do produce. So you can get a really good view of customer experience from there. And remember, we're not just trying to say demographics in terms of who our customer is. We also need to try and say, how do we get to that guy? So does he prefer an email? So for instance, if you try and call me during the day, you won't be able to get me. But if you send me an email with a nice picture, probably going to look at your product in a bit more depth. And um, yeah, so, so it's, it's all about getting the channel aligned to the person. Okay. So the nice thing is it removes your guesswork. It allows you to get your market size. It allows you to target your market specifically to specific people using specific channels in specific locations. The marketing costs are reduced because you're only pitching at the guys that you think are going to take up your project, your product. So now we've got the guys. So we've identified who we want. We've figured out how to get them. Now we have the customer. Now what do we do with them? <coughs> so basically, we're going to start with understanding the customer. Now, these look like slightly confusing graphs, but um, it, it, there is actually a point to them. So the first one is what, what we call the purchasing path analysis. Now, you get some cool tools like uh, Giphy or Node Excel in Excel which allow you to uh, uh, figure out the exact purchasing path that people have. So if I buy a love message, how likely is it that I will want a religious message? And um, ironically, you see trends like people who buy flirtation messages also like to have some of the religious stuff sent to them. Huh. <laughs> I was hoping for you. <laughs> there we go, guys. <laughs> Um, cool. So now you've got sort of the purchasing part that people use, but now you want to put numbers to it. You want to say, okay, we need probabilities. We need hard and fast numbers. If we go through this channel, I want to know how much I'm going to get, how likely is that I'm going to get it, and who am I going to get. So what you do is you construct a bunch of transition matrices. So Markov chains, yes, we all know those. Had a bit of difficulty with them in our third year, but they actually do come in useful in other industries as well. So what you do is you, stick, you stack them on top of each other and basically what you end up with then is that you can tell how likely is it that a certain person in two months time is going to be in a particular value band. You know how likely it is that that person is going to move up a salary band. You know what kind of um, type of communication he prefers. You know because he bought his Bible message, he wants a flirt message on a Saturday evening at 8 o'clock. So that's the kind of thing that we're working with. Um, so we're focusing on getting the right product to the right, at the right time to the right customer. It's integrated, so you've got all your views together. 
it's quantifiable, it's data-driven, and the mathematics is sound, which is very, very useful in a marketing-type environment. Okay, so the next one I've got up here is pricing sensitivity. And don't shoot me, because this isn't the perfectly technical <laughs> definition of pricing sensitivity. This is a more practical application that you do see in the industry. So for these kinds of things, you have a couple of data sources. So you have your surveys, which say, okay, if the service was priced between this and this, I would probably go for it. Or you have your internal data, which says, okay, well, we know 50% of our customer base purchases this, but they don't go for this one because it's too expensive. So you marry all of those together, and you use competitive views and so on to get graphs in terms of what you think is going to be pricing sensitivity. What we've looked at here is more of a almost pricing sensitive revenue sensitivity to pricing so if the market were to take up your product so if we take the first graph the the green one is at the particular price point how many do you think you're going to sell so you can see that decreasing and the other one is how much revenue you're going to get so at unit price 13 you're going to make quite a lot of money um, and the other one i don't really have time to go into right now but the nice thing that you can see with this is we didn't even do a full pricing sensitivity on the, on the one um, group of customers. And this was one of those love messages, flirt messages, those kinds of things, right? So we saw that during a particular time slot, if they actually just dropped their price by two cents for a particular message, they could literally triple their revenue. Because what would happen is people would use, the, use services up until the point where they have a certain amount of money left. And then um, when they try to pay, then they wouldn't be able to. So if you drop that billing by two cents, you tripled your revenue. Mm. Weird anomaly. So now we've gotten, who do we want to target? We've gotten them onto our business. We've maximized our revenue. But now we say, okay, we might want to do more with this customer. So this is where we come into next best action. Um, and th this one actually speaks to financial services, ironically. Um, but basically you... Business traditionally goes for mortgages, they go for motor insurance, life insurance. They produce products, and then they go, okay, I've got this product, who will buy it? Which is a little bit backwards if you think about it. If you think about it from a marketing and from an uptake perspective, you actually want to start with, what does the customer need? So customer needs include peace of mind, they need to plan for the future, those kinds of things. So the important part is to marry the business sense of, this is my product, who's the customer, with I'm a customer and these are my needs. So if you use these kind of big data techniques and you use the market overlays and everything, you get to a point where you actually move from this business-centered model more to a customer-centric model. But the advantage that you do have is you have all of this information about... Um, sorry, am I running over time here? No. <laughs> okay. So you have all of this information about these customers. and. Uh, and you use that together with their needs, and you will be surprised at the actual amount of traction you do get in the market, which is what I'm going to talk about next. So th these are some actual real-life quantifiable benefits that you get from it. So we love playing with our numbers and using all of these unstructured data mining techniques, and this word is mentioned so many times together with that word, so Pete likes blue flowers, you know. Um, but really, at some point, somebody has to pay us to do this. So. These are some real-life impacts that we've actually seen in, in industry. Um, so let's, let's start with, with customer segmentation. Uh, so we, um, we had a client, and they had, were of the opinion that, that they had more than a million subscribers in 
whatever industry. And uh, we had a look at their base and it was actually only 75% of this base was revenue generating. So that, that's a bit of a hard lesson for you if you're thinking you've got a million customers and you've got 750,000. That's, that's really starting to impact on your profit projections. Um, and within those, we then identified nine different clusters that needed to be treated in different ways with specific channels to com communicate with them, specific campaigns to be targeted to them so that they could go to that customer and try and retain those and reactivate their usage. Then in terms of uh, customer lifetime value, this is more of an academic benefit rather than a business benefit. But it just shows that the actuarial principles that we use in predicting these things are actually quite useful in industry. So for customer lifetime value, it's not just important to know what's my customer lifetime value now. I want to know how am I going to move over time because that behavior, specifically in industries where there's a variable expenditure, is very important. So we had about an 85% accuracy of seeing how people move between the different bands. Um, and in this business, we found that 35% of the customer base who, was, who were actually actively using the service were value destroying, which means that they were costing the company money. Uh, now imagine that you, you, we're pushing for our economies of scale and we think it's important and we're going for the lower LSMs because there are loads of them. And then we realize, oh, but we're making large losses. And Stuff like this tells you why. Um, so in terms of the data overlaying techniques, that's one of those that we could specifically go and say, we are going for Pete, he's age 20, he likes going through email, he lives in the Eastern Cape, we know he likes surfing and rugby, so at sports events we want to give him a free beer and maybe he'll take up our cell phone package. Then in terms of understanding the customer, the example that I used there was one of those flirt and love messages and those kinds of things. And um, I've, I've mentioned one of the advantages that we got from the billing side, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But um, for that specific customer, we also saw, identified three different baskets of products that people tended to buy together. So love, and, love messages and religious messages being one of them. And actually by combining those and cross-selling within those buckets, we managed to get a 44% uplift in sales. Then pricing sensitivity we've had a chat about. And then the next best action is around getting the be next best action to the client. So it's sort of like next best offer. I don't know if anybody's used to the idea. But next best offer is basically just what product do we sell next to the guy. Whereas next best action is a, is, goes a little bit beyond that and says, okay, is the next best action a retention activity? Is it a cross-sell activity? So it goes a little bit beyond that. Um, and what we found by using that more customer-centric view is that we got about a 16% reduction in the average call handling time in the call center and a 30% total sales uplift. Now, I've tried to keep mine quite short so that I can answer questions, so please, guys. <laughs> oh, we've got a microphone at the back. Does anybody have a question? Let's start there. Nada? Okay, cool. Short talk. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, we're just going to get you a microphone back there. And they're recording us, and I thought it was video, and, and apparently they thought I had more of a face for radio. So where do we start from to implement all these techniques and the big data? Where do we start? Do, do you mean where do you start learning to do it, or do you mean in the corporate setup? So what is your starting point generally? Uh, these models, setting up these models, and uh, especially on the infrastructure side, and then 
uh, it requires a lot of uh, intensive competing. Uh, it, it depends on the industry specifically and also the granularity that you go into. So um, ours we actually implemented at the client and they had big SaaS servers which was nice. Um, but in terms of where to start specifically, um, if, if you just want to start in terms of these things, uh, you can go for the packages like your, your SaaS or um, SPSS or those kinds of things. But you can get quite a lot done with things like R and Python and Java and those kinds of programming languages can actually be ironically simpler to use for these things because a lot of the pack, uh, things have been packaged in communities and the forums and everybody's willing to help because it's a open source community. So there are lots of useful things like that as well. Um, but in terms of where from a business perspective to start, I think it's basically the order of questions that I, that I suggested here. I think your starting point is who do you want to target? Um, in terms of a segmentation exercise, I think that's usually your starting point um, and that, that, that you can use various different software packages from. Um, and if you'd like, you can drop me a mail and I'll have a chat to you and see if we can get you started. Thanks. Um, maybe just for clarification, the, the research or the work that you did here, was it as an embedded internal department to the organization? No, no, no. This was for an, a consulting project, so for an um, external client. Maybe if I can ask a question, what challenges are you experiencing commercializing this kind of offering um, as a firm of actuaries or as an actuary? I mean, it's a broad question, but it's just picking up on that comment. We all love playing with data, but how do you actually make money from it? Yeah, so, so that's actually a very good point. Um, the problem we have as actuaries are, it's, uh, we can be honest, it's price. Um, we are, the market is price sensitive. You don't need to be an actuary to, to do this kind of work. It helps a lot to be one because you understand the mathematics just that little bit better. You understand the statistics and those kinds of things. But there are two to three hundred engineers standing around a corner trying to do the exact same thing. So in terms of where's our difficulty, it's generally in that kind of environment. Um, and you have your, your big consulting firms like your um, uh, Deloitte, Accenture, and all of those really big guys in there. And then you have your smaller consulting firms also trying to vie for that, and they're in a little bit of a more of a niche market and those kinds of things. So from a commercial perspective, you have a lot more pressure because you don't have the barrier to entry in terms of the actuarial qualification. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Okay, cool. Um, you mentioned self-organizing maps uh, at the beginning of the presentation. Um, was that generated with a SAP-based system, or how did you generate those? Uh, okay, so we got the information from the clients, and they were on a we stack, so it was a telco. Uh, so they got their data for us, but then we stuck into it through a program called SoMine, um, which does self-organizing map systems, but there's also an open source Java um, self-organizing map system package. And how many data points, for example, did that, did that SOM um, encompass? Uh, pff, it just, was... Just roughly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think we had about, uh, yeah, it was 750,000 rows and 40,000 columns. 40,000 columns? Yeah, remember it's multiplicative. So um, it's joined out. Yeah, yeah, so it's... it's Exactly. Still a lot, that's still a lot of columns, but well, okay. Yeah, so that's why we're in for the proprietary one and not the free one. <laughs> so it's a little bit better. <laughs> um, and then last question, um, you mentioned big data. Where, where, taking that as an example, where would you pull the line or draw the line on big data? 
uh, let's say 40,000 columns, which is a lot, how many rows would you start seeing it as big data, roughly? Um, to be honest, it's very, very dependent on kind of the hardware you have the, and how you've actually written the software. So I've written something in a particular software package and the computer fell over and you wrote it again in something like Python and it's fine. So it's very dependent on that. So generally my, the rule of thumb is uh, do an initial run with like a hundredth of the data. If the computer falls over, try a different way. Okay. <laughs> it's trial good. and error, sorry man. <laughs> yeah, I'm very interested in how you, well the challenges you face in getting external data and how you marry that with the internal data of the company. How do you go about selecting what data you want to get, how you want to get it, and how you want to marry it to your existing data? Good question. Um, it, it's about what you've got available. Mostly it starts with this is what I've got and this is what's in the market. Um, ideally we'd be in the situation where you say, okay, this is what we've got and this is what we want. So that's what we're going to get. But it, in general you end up with this is what we've got, this is what's in the market. And then you just try and see like what are things that overlap. So sure, it's not mathematically perfect, but if you just go and you say, okay, well, it's person this age, they're this gender, they're living in Bloemfontein and you have a little bit more information. So within that group of people, hopefully it's granular enough for the, for the merge to actually be inclusive. So you try to find similarities that you can use to link the, the different attributes. So if you've done a survey, somebody's done a survey and found certain characteristics, you try and link those characteristics based on the similarity of the people that were surveyed as you can link Exactly, the exactly, data. yeah. So it's not a per like I said, it's not a perfect mathematical solution, but something's better than nothing. Cool. Anyone else? Otherwise, I'm going to introduce Francois. This is Francois. He's going to do the next part of the chat. Thanks, guys. Right. Hi, I'm Francois. I'm from uh, Munich Reinsurance. Um, I work with a lot of uh, experience analysis and predictive analytics, that, that sort of thing. And before that, um, I was also involved with uh, the uh, development and marketing of a, a solution in the, um, in the deployment space, um, of a de where it's uh, deployment of business rules. Um, with this presentation, I want to, I can, I can maybe address some of the questions that have been coming from the audience. Um, it's, it's, about, it's, it's a bit of an overview and an introduction um, of data, data science to actuaries um, and, and where the actuary can see himself, the, the, the role of the actuary within data science. Um, I was sort of toying with an alternative title <laughs> for this presentation. I'll leave it up there. So the story goes, um, I was a, a nomadic, nomadic graduate uh, moving uh, from one apartment to the other in Seapoint and I didn't have, have many uh, belongings at the time, so I thought it would be a good idea just to stuff whatever I have in the car and um, uh, carry what, whatever doesn't fit. And pretty soon, um, the, the first couple of friends and I, we realized, well, we need two things. We need strong dudes and a decent sized van. And so um, three years later, I was pretty surprised uh, when I saw a van drive by a coffee shop with these markings. And it's my opinion that these guys know precisely what their industry is about. Um, if, you, if you wake them up in the middle of the night, they'll be able to tell you it's about strong dudes and, and decent-sized decent vans. And um, I'm of the opinion that in today's times, um, and it's, it's quite conceivable that an actuary can be expected to advise a board on um, 
uh, a data mining strategy and an approach to data mining. And um, uh, probably not half of the actors in this room uh, would be able to tell you as definitively as these guys precisely what data science is about. So I want to talk about the dudes in the vans of data science. And um, with the dudes, I, I, I sort of mean the, the, the human skills involved, the, um, the data analytic thinking and the technical skills uh, needed for data science. Um, uh, with the vans, I'm sort of referring to the, the hardware and the software and the, and the sources of data. Um, so with the next two slides, I want to cover some ground pretty quickly. Um, I have up there some headline descriptions of uh, definitions of what data science is according to some uh, textbooks. And, and there's a bit of a um, uh, conflict or a discussion about what the scope of data science really is or should be. Um, so you get some textbooks that define it quite broadly, such as uh, this definition. It's the collection, preparation, analysis, visualization, management, and preservation of large collections of information. That sort of involves uh, several occupations, several professions at once. Um, and, and certainly it's, it's, it's not within the domain of uh, actuarial science. And then on the other hand, um, a celebrity statistician, uh, Nate Silver, was quoted warning that um, data, uh, statistics is a branch of science and uh, the term data scientist is slightly redundant. People should not berate the term statistician. So when uh, you're performing uh, data mining, you should sort of have, um, be willing to have put on two hats, two different hats. The one being um, open to uh, new practices uh, such as the warehousing and the, the computer science behind uh, data science. And uh, also dealing with some statistical techniques that, that we have not necessarily come, come across, such as the neural networks and the, um, and the unstructured data mining. Um, and then on the other hand, you should equally be willing and able to get bogged down into the, into the statistics um, of data science, um, such as uh, statistical inference. So data science uh, seems to be referring to a kind of a, a holistic statistics professional. And at this point, you should be thinking, but hey, wait, hang on, actuaries are holistic statistics professionals. Um, I can talk briefly about the origins, but uh, we've all heard the story about how computers are becoming faster and faster and that networking is everywhere and we're talking about the Internet of Things and they're all generating data. But um, a third point, uh, which is one of the origins of um, data science and, and big data, um, is the fact that uh, algorithms are being developed um, that, that connect data sets. And uh, to give you some examples of this, um, scientific journals are being shared um, with, a, with a shared protocol. Um, it's the text is made available in an XML format and um, add to that some text mining techniques and you've got a database of all the scientific articles being published and it's searchable, it's indexed. Um, uh, and, and a different example, and I think this is the example of linked data sets, is linked data on the web. It is a, a movement um, uh, by the, the World Wide Web Consortium, led by Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the internet, um, and, and they, are, they seek to um, make uh, large data sets, open source data sets, machine readable on the internet, so pretty soon. Uh, so this is a protocol, say, for sharing um, even, the, even the, the commercial data sets, uh, such as 8020 data. 
and the activities of the Continuous Mortality Investigations Committee of ASA can also be described as um, data science and linking data sets, uh, different company data sets, to draw information uh, for the greater good. So linking ads potential um, and standalone data sets uh, are inherently limited by whatever variables are available. So the more you link the data sets, the more variables you have to analyze. Uh, this slide um, is a, a structure, a, a, a schema developed by um, IBM, um, a, a group of people from IBM in the late 90s. And they, were, uh, they, they sought to um, uh, get the, the, the core principles of um, data science um, uh, down to a, 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 a simple schematic which can be transferred to different industries. And uh, what they came up with is this, the cross-industry standard process for data mining. Um, and it is, it is very intuitive and, and, and easy to follow, and I can uh, just briefly talk about it. But what is most important to notice is that mini-cycle between the business understanding and data understanding. Um, so uh, maybe this addresses the, the question in the audience. The, um, the starting point is the business need, uh, the, the business question, and, and you then try to identify what data you need and what techniques you need in order to be able to address that. Um, and and you, you discover your limitations. Um, so if to, to expand on this CRISP-DM methodology, the uh, leaflet um, is available on the internet. Um, it's proliferated textbooks, and it's, it's pretty much the accepted standard. Um, and uh, I really encourage you to, to take a look at it. And they actually elaborate on, on some of the details of each of these steps. Uh, so so it, it really is about discovering um, the constraints uh, that you have within your, your, your current data environment. And moving on with the uh, CRISPR methodology, Towards the right-hand side, uh, there's data preparation and modeling. These are things that we're familiar with. And on the left, it's evaluation and deployment. This all sort of looks pretty familiar. It sort of looks like the actuarial control cycle, just a little bit on its side. Um, so at this point, you should really be having a bit of an uh, identity crisis. Aren't actuaries latent data scientists? This next uh, slide. Um, is the confusion matrix. It's nothing to be confused about. Um, at the left, at, at the top, where you've got your data set and uh, there's some uh, induction algorithm being uh, performed on the data set and out comes a model. And uh, that model can either produce uh, true positives, uh, true negatives, uh, false positives and false negatives. And the rate at which it produces these can be normalized into expected rates and we can combine that with a cost-benefit analysis um, of the outcome of this model to give you the expected value of this data, um, of this model. And I got this from a data science textbook, uh, even though it's uh, quite an actuarial concept. So um, I've been talking about the, the, the skills required for data analytic thinking. And uh, to recap a little bit, uh, data analytic thinking is then, uh, or some skills, for data analytic thinking is thinking rationally about the predictive value of a model, such as the confusion matrix example, uh, connecting, connecting and centralizing data, uh, seeing networks as a source of data, that's, that's connecting your own data sets 
um, to uh, centralizing your own data sets and seeing the value um, in doing that. And then CRISP-DM methodology, which is um, well uh, broadly accepted. So the role of the actuary um, is, is to be able to evaluate data mining proposals, um, spot opportunities in data, and to curate, curate um, a data science capability. Um, I can talk uh, just briefly about the, the, the technical skills of, of data science, but um, that's, uh, that, that's a, a, a different presentation on its own. So um, uh, to give you a, a brief overview uh, of, of at least some of the techniques that we're not so familiar with, such, um, such as the unsupervised data mining, unstructured, um, unsupervised data mining actually, uh, it's, it's when it's, it's you're not modeling a particular target variable. We're used to modeling um, rates of mortality, um, income, say. Um, but if you've just received the data set and you've got no idea what even to look for, that's unsupervised data mining. So the observer, the, the analyst, is unbiased uh, with the techniques and the, um, the data mining that he sets out to perform. So it's, uh, it's about finding insights without specifically needing to guide the analysis, letting the insights emerge, uh, such as with um, SOMS. So some of the techniques of unsu unsupervised data mining is uh, clustering. Um, some of the techniques within that are the SOMS, uh, dendrograms, hierarchical clustering. That's a very good starting point um, just to to see uh, the order of the data, which, f which factor factors are actually important um, are most descriptive of this data set. Uh, a different technique is means k-means clustering, so um, grouping objects that are similar, whether, whether uh, a particular object would gravitate towards a, a centroid, uh, which is the closest to that object. And at the end, what we read from that is uh, the, the number of different um, centroids and clusters that we've identified and the descriptive characteristics of that, the mean value of that cluster. Think in terms of choosing uh, model points for valuations. If, if the data could present to you uh, um, by itself the important model points and the weights that need to be attributed to that. Continuing with unsupervised data mining techniques, um, FCS spoke uh, quite a bit about co-occurrence matching, uh, co-occurrence grouping. This is when you discover the patterns that are, that are occurring much more than uh, you would expect to see by chance. Um, finding the surprises in the data, such as the shoppers buying uh, nappies and beer um, uh, being correlated. And uh, similarity matching is um, a, t a technique of uh, just transferring the, the, the properties of uh, a data set, uh, the properties of an identified cluster onto a new uh, data variable, um, and uh, these are techniques that, that are that are, um, are being employed with the recommendation systems that you see, say, for uh, with with the Amazon Books, say, for example. Um, but what's important for us is once you've performed your clustering um, to to identify the important um, heterogeneous uh, homogeneous classes within the data, and you've performed your co-occurrence uh, grouping to to see what the, the, the surprises that, that these groupings have to offer, and you are able to, um, you are able to transfer the properties of one uh, group of, 
of one data set onto another uh, because, of the, because of other shared characteristics, then you, you would have performed behavior profiling, um, finding the typical behavior of subclasses of your data. And that is a very powerful technique for, um, uh, for market identification and product development, um, as FCA explained. So supervised data mining is something that we're much more familiar with. This is where the predictive analytics comes in. A causal modeling, which we know as rate factor identification. Um, a regression, it's, it's a bit unsatisfying to, uh, to see just the, the discomfort that, that we still have with GLMs in the, in the industry. Uh, we're not necessarily um, approaching them as our first point of call. Um, uh, classification is just another technique uh, which flows from um, uh, clustering. So I've spoken about the, the dudes. I can talk just a little bit about the vans of data science. And the sources, um, data generation, um, it, data science is not necessarily just external data. It's, it, it, it starts at home. Um, recording your own data with diligence and accuracy, um, taking the human out of the equation, making it automatic, and um, networking your data sets, uh, centralizing data sets into a single source, and, and recording the correct metrics that you need for the business purpose. Warehousing and access is, is a, a topic that um, I'm certainly not an expert at. Um, at a conference yesterday um, on big data, um, Hadoop came out to be the, the, the favorite among, among many of the participants, but that's with really, really um, mega data sets, um, machine-generated data. Um, for our pur purposes, we're probably all used to SQL. Um, analysis, um, we have a course on, on modeling, so it's not necessary to expand much on that, but it is important that the analysis is repeatable, um, that the system is self-documenting, um, and that it, it can be integrated with the data source and with the deployment model as well. And it's also important to utilize existing skills. Um, don't go out looking for um, a data scientist with Hadoop experience and, and, and all that. So we've, we've probably all got the skills we need. And then um, a very important concept is a deployment. Um, the the, the importance is that, um, or the, the most important thing is that the outcome should be linked to that problem state statement that we started with to begin with. Um, and, and maybe some of the, uh, the uh, obstructions to data science and data mining that we currently face in the industry is maybe a bit of low buy-in and we're not really seeing the, the, the potential in, in the data that we have. And um, then it's also uh, necessary to um, evaluate the performance of the model. Is it performing, is it doing the purpose we set out for it to do? So that, that's uh, my discussion. Um, and um, I thought rather than, than you peppering me with the difficult questions, I could uh, pose some questions to the audience. Um, some of the obstacles to data mining and data science within our industry is certainly the Protection of Information Act, um, the requirements for having the consent of um, the data objects, the people, and um, um, recording a minimum information as possible, and obtaining that, that information directly. Um, 
how is the industry going to be dealing with that? And what external, who, or who, where's the responsibility for providing the external sources? Who should we look to for the external sources of data? Um, is, should it be open source? Uh, some governments have actually started making um, data available. Ours is also on the list. Um, it should be for-profit organizations. Uh, can we utilize some of the data that is already um, available in the industry, such as data from CESA and ASA and the FSB? And um, should universities play a, a bigger role in uh, providing these external data sets? Thank you. Um, there's now time for some questions. Thank, thank you very much. Both excellent presentations. I really enjoyed them. Um, my question is around understanding whether the analysis is meeting the business need, especially when you're doing unsupervised analysis. You don't actually have a question you're putting to the model. You're just looking at similarities, characteristics that fit together. How do you know that the answers you get are actually going to meet a business need at the end? With supervised um, analysis, you know what the target variable is. You know what you're trying to solve. Unsupervised, you're just looking and seeing what the data is telling you and hoping that you get insights. And then probably a follow-on question to that is, how do you interpret the stuff that you're seeing? I mean, it takes a lot of um, time and analysis to understand, okay, what does this cluster really mean? What are we going to do with this information? How are we going to use it to meet a business need? Um, yes, so um, uh, the, uh, the unsupervised data mining is... Um, um, at least this is the way I see it, and I'm really not talking out of uh, personal experience, but um, the business need is to understand the data, and um, what you get in the end is actually something that, that meets that need, is having just a, a better grip on the data set, knowing which questions to model next with the target variable. Um, uh, the second part of your question? Uh, basically how you interpret that, I mean how you look at the characteristics and try and identify what it is it's telling you. Um, I think that that can be uh, very unique to, to each uh, individual application. Um, I, I'm quite sure that the, the kind of techniques that you, that you set out um, on that data set um, has a, a certain limitations in the outcome and you know how to interpret it. I think you answered it with your first answer to say it gives you insight that you can ask more questions. Right. Thanks. Hi, Francois. Just maybe a comment on, on the question around... Um, uh, you know what to do when, you know, when we posed a problem of, of sort of unstructured analysis. I mean, we've had some clients who come to us and ask, you know, here's a set of data. What do we do with it? Or tell us something interesting about it. And I think, I think that's the unique potential, you know, amongst the the, the actuarial community is is we naturally, or we, we should at least be naturally thinking about. You know, the financial implications of, of, of the information we're looking at, the, the business context of the information we're looking at. And, and the truth is, you know, there's lots of unstructured sort of analytical models out there that can, can help, you know, indicate inferences or relationships or correlations or, or whatever they may be. But, but as you investigate, it needs to be guided by some kind of, you know, intelligent insight. So I think, um, you know, what we've found is... Um, you know, spend some time doing that clustering, doing the, you know, finding if there are relationships between variables, but then using that insight to then sort of drill down deeper and deeper. And then sometimes there actually is some really useful stuff in there. Um, but I think even an unstructured approach has to, has to have some structure or else it's, it's, it very often doesn't lead to that sort of business outcome that might be useful for a client. I don't know if that helps. 
Yes, yes. And it probably doesn't take much to um, to um, one or two exercises, and you've got quite the experience to be able to direct the unstructured um, uh, data mining into a decent direction. Anybody else? Yeah, I think, Francis, thank you very much. I think just the, the comment as well, I mean, I think we may be quick to discard that slide you put up on the CRISP and the, and the methodology around it. And I think really we need to view this as a process um, within the client space. So I don't think a once-off analysis can ever yield the kind of aha moment that I think we all as data scientists are looking for or hoping we get you know, to justify the consulting fees. But I think it's about getting the clients to really buy into that, into that process because a lot of it is around testing. You, know, you want to also um, have an initial hypothesis and then there must be management action and then you need to measure that. You know, and I think as actuaries we're actually quite good at establishing that um, and hopefully we can, we can convince clients to follow uh, a methodology. I think just the other one is around the data quality and, and the impact that has on the, on the decisions. I mean, we're all very well schooled in, in garbage in, garbage out. But your clients and a lot of the clients that we encounter, even in the financial services space, um, your, their data is a byproduct of their offering or their, or their, um, their industry, what they do and it's an often discarded uh, aspect. So it's also about convincing clients to change focus and to say, listen, your data is a valuable commodity. You don't only have to store it for statutory purposes, but there is value. And I think it's slowly changing, but I think we can also act as change agents in that space. Hi, Francois. Um, quick question. As part of our actuarial studies, uh, we pretty much touched GL GLMs. We didn't touch decision trees, random forests, neural nets, self-organizing maps. Are you comfortable applying these techniques, um, making recommendations based on that techniques, knowing that you didn't have those studies, uh, even though they were uh, university courses, but you didn't have it? I mean, something. the first thing of the actuarial control cycle is, are you competent or do you reckon yourself competent using something? And um, do you recommend, I mean, Something that I found lacking in our courses was the fact that no data mining or uh, analysis uh, went into that at any level, and uh, you had to take that yourself if you, you know, wanted more information about it. Um, I would refer you to your Bayesian uh, inference textbooks, uh, but um, so so I was also quite a bit surprised when um, when when I discovered that that we've. I have the introduction to the GLMs that I need in order to uh, analyze them further or just learn them further. Um, log, likelihood, log likelihood optimization. Um, that's basically the principle behind it all. And it is something that we have dealt with. Um, at my own organization, um, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's driven by uh, personal and, and, and personal initiative and a, l a little bit of working together um, and, and maybe a, a, a getting some input from, from the statistics departments from the various universities uh, should set you, put you on the right direction and pretty quickly as well. Uh, there's the hand just behind you. I think just from the wider fields perspective, I mean that's a kind of a shared concern that we have and I guess that's why, why we're calling this wider fields with respect to the traditional actuarial um, training, the awareness around that. So there's a lot of um, initiatives that we are planning within that committee to actually 
um, push the, the kind of skills uh, that's required for people that is expressing interest in this kind of area and make sure that your universities, the syllabi and all of that is aligned with it. So, I mean, there is a gap. You're absolutely right. I mean, we can't explain that away. There's, there's passionate individuals which happen to have studied actuarial science which are trying to organize ourselves within this new space. Um, and I think there's a general sense that as actuaries, given our data bias, our, our love for data and our treatment of it with the necessary respect where we can, um, there's an affinity and I think that affinity now needs to be organized and that's the, the purpose of our wider fields initiative. Thanks. Just on that, I mean, we find, you know, employing data analysts, um, I think truthfully from the actuarial sort of space, I mean, the guys tend to be really good at Excel. Um, and that's sort of, you know, so if you need something done in VBA, then, you know, then, then that's great. But, but, but anything beyond that, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a learning curve required. Um, and, I mean, truthfully, we find people with, with sort of the maths, maths focus or stats, sort of a pure play stats focus, tend to, you know, from a university, tertiary education perspective, tend to be better skilled in the kind of stuff we've been talking about this afternoon. Um, but we often then just direct the guys towards things like Coursera and lots of the online courses, which, I mean, there's, there's a whole range of courses out there um, freely available that, that start from beginner right through to advanced. And um, I think the nice thing with the, you know, the actual space is the guys tend, you know, hopefully we, you know, we all know how to think. And I think that's the most important thing. And we all know how to solve problems, which is possibly the most important thing. Learning a new language or applying those skills in a certain context, um, those are just techniques that, that we need to start, you know, we really need to start proving ourselves to be proficient in and professional in. Yeah. Um, to, to give you a bit of a watch this space, um, some of the activities of the Wider Fields Committee is to make some recommendations uh, to the actuarial syllabus about some of the, 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 the gaps that are in there. And, and maybe also addressing that um, the appetite, um, um, the, the buy-in, getting the buy-in from um, higher management into uh, data mining and the value thereof. A lot of people are talking about big data and now it's the next big revolution in data analysis and data mining. And I read a comment somewhere on a news site where, where, where somebody made the comment that um, underdeveloped countries uh, particularly countries in Africa, will be forever excluded from this revolution because their um, data warehousing facilities are just not um, developed enough to accommodate big data. Um, what's your perspective on that? Is there a potential for development of, for this revolution in Africa? The, the biggest um, demand for, for, for uh, data mining and data science uh, comes from machine-generated data, and it is from um, cloud uh, data, which is uh, organizations that have moved into the cloud. Um, that's where the data is centralized, and it becomes that large. Um, international organizations with this cloud implementation, and uh, some of the limitations to cloud in Africa is um, internet speed and just reliability. Um, and uh, that, that's probably one of the reasons why that's a correct statement and a correct assessment. Um, and maybe also the fact that um, it's yeah, the, the bigger companies aren't just not here and they've got the biggest data sets. Then if um, there aren't any further questions, thank you.